0: As we get God's Word open right now, let's start with um, an assumption, Um, an assumption or two, in fact. Assumptions are like starting points. They're kind of like foundational beliefs that you might have. So um, first assumption is this, uh, God is. That's an assumption that we make. The world um, outside of these doors does not start with that assumption, but we certainly do start there. Uh, the world outside would start with, um, not God is, but they might start with the world is. Or uh, folks outside the church might start with um, humanity is. Those might be the assumptions or the starting point. But for us, you know, because we're informed by the Word of God, we would go to the very first um, line of the Word of God in Genesis 1.1, and we would hear these four words, in the beginning, God And so that's our starting point. That's our basic assumption before anything else was, uh, before the universe was, before humanity was, uh, God was, and God is. So that's our first assumption, God is. A second assumption that we bring to this place today is this, and these are the words of Jesus in John uh, chapter 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble, trouble. In this world, you'll have trouble. A trouble. In other words, a uh, second basic assumption is life is hard. Anybody want to dispute that? Life is, life is hard. It's hard for everyone. And if I could bring those two assumptions together with today's passage, God is, and in this life you'll have trouble, they would come together like this. Thomas Watson was a Puritan preacher back in the uh, 17th century, and he said this, If God be our God, if that's our assumption and our starting point, if God be our God, he will give us peace in trouble. There's that second assumption. When there's a storm without, he will make peace within. The world can create trouble and peace, but God can create peace in trouble So as I said, over the next two weeks leading into Christmas, we're going to look at a couple of things that the prophet Micah said to Israel about this matter of peace. And the nation was facing, in fact, trouble on all sides, though they were living somewhat in denial of that trouble in their lives. And through the prophet, God spoke into that trouble, promising that a Savior would come who would be, and this is from the passage, you'll hear it in a moment, who would be their peace. And that's what we want. That's, that's what we'll get if we start with this assumption of God and we assume the assumption, of course, of trouble in this life. If we bring that together, God will actually give us peace. He himself will be our peace. It's true for them, the time of Micah, and it's true for us. So that we could make this statement by the end of our time here together and believe this, here's what we're going to go after. When I'm vulnerable and facing crushing circumstances, help appears in an unexpected place in an unlikely Savior who delivers an unshakable peace. I want us to believe that and to own that and be living that as a result of hearing God's word here today. I hope you believe it. So let me read the text. This is Micah chapter 5. You found it yet? Everybody found it? Yeah, Micah chapter 5. Uh, mostly the first five verses, just the first part of verse five. So starting at verse one. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel their peace. Let's pray together. Father, this room uh, no doubt represents um, quite a number of troubling situations, turmoil and angst, and just the hardships of life. And Father, we've uh, come here today wanting peace, whether we thought about it or not, coming through the doors. And I pray, God, that you would speak into all of our various life situations, all of our circumstances. And God, that you would assure us, convince us that Jesus Christ himself is our peace. And we pray this in his strong name. Amen. Amen. All right, so that statement that we made, that's what we're going to go after. And what we're going to do is just break it down uh, phrase by phrase as we go here. So let's uh, start with this first line when I'm vulnerable and facing crushing uh, circumstances, when not if, when I face these things. And what's interesting about the time that Micah is prophesying into, to understand a little bit of that, is that things were actually going fairly well. In Israel at this particular time in their history. I mean, there's a lot of times in Israel's history where it wasn't going so well, but this was actually a pretty good time. It was the 8th century BC. It was a time of prosperity and peacefulness, at least outwardly, they were showing that. And beneath the surface, though, there were several things going on in Israel that were, were of great concern to God and was, and was really, these things were putting the nation under threat. Of God's discipline. First of all, there was growing corruption in the nation, both um, among the leaders politically and the leaders religiously. There was a growing corruption as a result of the prosperity and the peace that they had. Secondly, the people were rampantly worshiping other gods. So they had the temple in Jerusalem and they were worshiping Yahweh, but they were also going out and borrowing all the gods of the other nations and bringing those in as well and worshiping them. And then thirdly, the people were so self-absorbed and so self-confident in themselves with their prosperity that they were neglecting societies marginalized. The very thing the Mosaic Law had told them, you're supposed to care for those on the margins. They were ignoring the law of God and they were ignoring the poor and the hurting And hoarding everything for themselves. And so because of those three things that were happening in the nation, the character of the nation at the time, the discipline of God was looming. Because all of these things were seen as disobedience against the Lord. And Micah's preaching in, think of a prophet, he's preaching into their situation and he's trying to bring some truth to it so that they would actually repent of their disobedience. In fact, at this particular time in Israel's history, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were separated from one another. There were two different kings, and the northern kingdom was especially a rebellious and disobeying the Lord. And so while Micah's preaching in the southern kingdom, and that was his base in Jerusalem, he was actually preaching sermons into the northern kingdom and warning them, telling them, God's discipline on you is imminent. And so he says this, Verse 1, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, call on, call on the army, things are going to get bad, time to, time to defend ourselves because siege, he says, is laid against us. And with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel, the king, on the cheek. This is meant to communicate shame that his rule is over, that he's been subdued. Now, the thing about Micah writing this and and preaching this is it hadn't happened yet. He was forecasting it, prophesying it, warning them. And Micah is saying, once this happens, once this siege begins, even though you've mustered your troops, even though you know that things are awful, Micah is saying that none of us will escape. And you will have good reason for distress, for mourning, for heartache. Everyone is going to feel the weight and the burden and the trauma of what's coming. But still, it's not all doom and gloom because we have a God of hope. A God who wants to deliver a very positive salvation message to us. And so Leslie C. Allen, one commentator on this passage, he said this, he has a message of good news to impart, speaking of Micah, Micah has a message of good news to impart, which, however, cannot be appreciated until they realize to the full gravity of their situation and their hopelessness apart from God. Now that's a powerful theological point, not just for Micah's audience, but for us. That the good news that Jesus Christ wants to deliver to us cannot be fully appreciated unless we first appreciate the desperate situation that we find ourselves in personally. Everyone is vulnerable. We need to admit that. Everyone is facing crushing circumstances at various points in their lives. You might be like Israel was when Micah was preaching. You might be in denial about it. You might be trying to to just put the best face on it and say all the right words and project something to everyone else. But everyone's vulnerable. It's an inevitable part of life. And ultimately, even, even if you get a smooth ride in life, and some people do, everything just seems to go their way and, and they always have enough money, and they always have enough friends, and their families are always around them, and they're just successful in life, and they make it to the very end. And here's the, here's the thing. No matter what, every single one of us faces at the end of our lives this crushing circumstance called our own mortality. I don't, we don't like to talk about it, but we're all going to die I love this Christmas message, this is so encouraging. (laughs) I'm so glad we came today. But no one escapes that. I don't wanna talk about it, but no one escapes it. And again, to come back to what the commentator said, Leslie Allen said, until you and I realize to the full gravity of our situation, the full gravity of our hopelessness apart from God, until we get to that place, we, listen, we will have no peace. We have to hear and accept the bad news before we can fully appreciate the good news. And, and we have that. We have this message of good news. That's what Micah's delivering to them, namely that, see this next, that help appears, help appears, this is good news, help appears, but in an unexpected place. And Micah not only exposes the darkness in this, and you got to see both sides of this. He, he, he exposes the darkness, but he also reveals light. He preaches death, but he, 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 he shows the way to life. He details the despair, but also offers hope. And he writes in verse 2 of this town. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. I mean, you're so insignificant. We don't even really list your name among any of the clans in that particular tribe. You're just an insignificant little speck on a map. You don't even have four stop signs. Bethlehem was where shepherds hung out, a sheep farming community. Shepherds themselves were unesteemed people in Judean society. I mean, this was a nothing place. But Micah says of this place, again, continuing on verse 2, From you, Bethlehem, insignificant little town, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now that had happened before and we'll come back to that thought. But the promise here is what's important. A promise that was first given in the Garden of Eden after the fall of humanity. Reiterated over and over and over again. Restated in covenant after covenant for all Israel and throughout the Old Testament. And that all of it would culminate in the birth of Jesus in that little town of Bethlehem. Now here's the thing I said we come back to. It happened before. It happened before for a guy named David. This was where David came from. And this ruler that we're speaking of in Micah's prophecy is going to be in the Davidic line fulfilling the Davidic covenant that God had made. That God would place someone forever on the throne of David. But there was something unique about him. That his origin was far greater than simply being a descendant, a human descendant of David. Notice what he says next in verse 2. Who's coming forth, speaking of this ruler, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now from of old and from ancient days, this is more than just way back when. Okay? It's more than way back when. It's actually all the way back to, in the beginning, God. The unique thing about this ruler is that he is a future king in the line of David, but he's also somehow preexistent before even the creation. And I'm not saying that when Micah is communicating this, that he fully understands that. I'm just saying he's communicating it. The bottom line is God picked this very unexpected place to be the place for this ruler to be born. And the people in Micah's day would have been like, Jerusalem, that's the place. Not Bethlehem. Not any other city. Jerusalem. That's where the palace is. That's where the kings reside. That's where the temple is. It's Jerusalem. It's not Bethlehem. That would be so unexpected. Now, here's the thing for us we're the unexpected place. The church is the unexpected place today because for every person that's outside of these walls who, who did not think about coming to church today, who does not find themselves in worship, not listening to a sermon, not here, not at any other Bible teaching church in this city. For those who do not darken the doors of a church, the vast majority of people in the city of Barrie and the Simcoe and in Simcoe County, those people cannot imagine that the church offers them anything, that you as a Christian offer them anything. To actually bring them peace. Now they want it. I mean their life is hard too. They face all the same things that we face. All the same troubles. All the same heartaches. It's all the same. It's the plight of humanity whether you're a believer or not. And outside of these walls, people are no less interested in finding peace in the midst of the turmoil. They want their lives to settle down too. But in trying to seek a solution, they would never think, I've got to ask that Christian about that. I wonder if the church has the answer. I should read the Bible. I'm just telling you. For those outside the church, those are all unexpected places that they wouldn't even think of searching out because they don't believe we have it. You know, just think about it. On the night that the child was born, on the night that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was great hoopla in this little village. I mean, you gotta imagine how small it was. That if, that if the shepherds who were actually not in the village and were out in the hills with their sheep, all of a sudden they appear in the middle of the night and start creating a fuss in the village because angels had shown up in their camp to tell them that a child was born in town. You have to understand that every single person in town knew that they had come. And beyond that, the gospels tell us that after the angels told them and after they saw the child, what did they do? They went around and told everybody they could possibly tell that this child was born. He was the Messiah. That would have created such a stir in this little insignificant little town. Only had one Tim Hortons. Everybody knows everyone else's business. And then they got quiet. Jesus was just another baby in town. Eventually Mary and Joseph left and went to Egypt. A great trauma befell that village as a result and then life just went on. For 30 years. 30 years. Nothing. Nothing. A flash in the pan. I don't know what that was all about. Do you remember when? That was such an incredible night. Whatever happened to that? Nothing. And no one was thinking about that night in Bethlehem anymore. And so it's not unusual that people today have dismissed us as irrelevant and a relic of a different era and some different distant memory about some guy and some way of living your life that makes no sense at all. It's no wonder that people outside of the church dismiss all of this as nothing. And yet, nevertheless, we know that we have the message. We have the one who is our peace. And if they would choose it, their peace as well. All right, let's keep going. When I'm vulnerable... And I'm facing crushing circumstances. Help appears in an unexpected place right here in the church, in the word of God. And in an unlikely savior. Chapter, uh, verse three here. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. That first, that first little phrase there, that's troubling to me. He shall give them up. God will give up Israel. God's going to turn them over to their own devices. God is going to honor the way that he created us with a volition, an ability to choose how we want to live our lives. God's going to give them up to that. You want to live a godless life? You don't want me to be a part of it? You don't want to live out the word of God? Then go ahead And live your godless life. And with that godless life will come all the consequences. That we have to endure as a result of living a godless life. God says to us, you want to live that way? Here you go. Live that way. Therefore he shall give them up. Here's the hope. Until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And that's, that's Mary and Jesus. Now, no doubt Micah here, it was like 30 years prior to where Micah is prophesying 30 years prof, uh, prior to that, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying. And in, in Isaiah seven fourteen, we have that prophecy about a virgin giving birth and Micah's playing off that. It's the same prophecy that he's giving here 30 years later. Then verse 3, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. When this happens, there's this remnant that believes and are restored. There's always a big group of people who are rebellious. And then there's always this smaller group of people who are faithful to God and are the remnant. And again, that communicates hope to us. Verse 4, and this ruler and he shall stand. Now look at the resolute nature of his rule. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And this stands in contrast to every other king of Judah and every other king of Israel who blew it to a greater or lesser degree. Even when we categorize all these kings of Judah, we might say, well, this was a good king and this was a bad king. But even the good kings weren't good all the time. Yet this king is quite different. This, this ruler will be unique in his strength and in his relationship to God. And he would rely fully, in fact, on the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name so that the hope of Israel's deliverance is not going to be in human strength. It's not going to be in military might or conquest. Israel's strength is going to be fully in the Lord. And this is something that confused Israel from this point in history, the 8th century, all the way through to the 1st century when Jesus was born, even Jesus' own hand-picked followers were confused about the nature of his kingdom and kept thinking this was about an earthly kingdom, this was about an earthly conquest, this was about throwing off the shackles of Rome. Just as those in Micah's time might have thought it was resisting the Assyrian Empire. Or a little while later, it was resisting the Babylonian Empire. His followers have constantly been confused about the nature of his mission and the kind of Savior he was. And we too, we still, we still, even though we have the Scriptures and we have all these lessons and we know what the Word of God says... We still get so confused about the kind of Savior that Jesus is. In fact, what we do is rather than have Jesus as our one and only Savior and looking to him alone, we actually create all these other Saviors. We can take all those other Saviors and we can put them into two different categories. And let me share each with you. The first category would be very negative attempts to be saved negative saviors or destructive saviors that we bring into our lives. And we think about this, our battle, what we're fighting against, it's not an actual war against an invading army like it was for Israel, but we're fighting against things like disease and death and grief and hardship and addiction and strained and severed relationships and mental illness and unbelief and all of these things War against us day by day. And so we face a choice. What savior are we going to run to? Are we going to run to these destructive saviors? These saviors actually only add to our problems. They'll never save us. But I will admit this about them. They may distract us for a while. They may distract us. I'm thinking about these saviors. Ready for these? Some of you may be gripped by one or more of these. Drugs, alcohol, sex, entertainment, gaming, work. Shopping, eating, two saviors we run to at Christmas in particular. And these these will, again, I admit, these will take us away from our troubles for a time. But ultimately, there's no peace, is there? I mean, picture, if this was Israel, again, at Micah's time, and what he's prophesying for them is, you got to picture the city of Jerusalem. And I want you to imagine yourself as the city of Jerusalem. And the cities in those days, the capital cities in particular, had walls all the way around them and gates. And at dusk, those gates would be closed for security. Sentries would be put on the walls to watch for enemies. When an enemy army actually came, you would hold up in the city. Everything would be secured. The enemy army would come and they would lay siege to the city by surrounding it. They would choke off all the food supply. If possible, they would choke off the supply of water as well. They would ensure that there was no going out and no coming into the city. And they would just wait it out. They would wait it out. Why fight when you can just wait it out? Starve them out. It's a besieged city. Now imagine that the people in this besieged city who know the desperate situation they're in. Imagine now that they decide the best way to fight the enemy to overcome the trouble in their life is to throw a party. Let's blow up some balloons. Let's bake some cakes. Let's bring in a band. Let's have dancing. Let's do party games. Let's do it all. Let's just have a big party. That'll solve our problem. Let's, let's have lots of alcohol. Let's, let's have sex with one another. Let's just pull out all the stops and have an amazing party. They may for a while forget their situation. But the fact remains. Just outside the walls, there's an army besieging the city, waiting them out. Now, if you're attempting to deal with your trouble with an inferior savior, you will be overcome eventually. The enemy will crash the gates will break down the walls of your life and consume you. The enemy will take the city. The enemy will take you. Those are the negative saviors that we look at. I said there was a second category, and obviously it's the more positive saviors that we have in our lives. These saviors are also inferior. They will also let you down. These saviors will not save you. They're counterfeit saviors. They peddle a salvation that they cannot deliver. I'm going to tell you about five counterfeit saviors that we bring into our lives to try and deal with the troubles we have. The first counterfeit savior is um, inner strength. Inner strength. This is like... Personal resolve. This is, I can do it. This is the phrase that we hear so often. I just got to believe in myself. If I believe in myself, I can overcome anything. And it's not true. I can't overcome anything just by believing I can. Counterfeit savior number two, other people. Family and, and friends and, and fellow believers and people in my small group. And I mean, it's so great to have other people in our lives. And God has fashioned us for a relationship and He's knit us together in this community called the church for a reason because we do need each other. But I need you to know this you are not my Savior, and I am not your Savior. Nobody here is saving anyone else. I need you to know that you're messed up. As messed up as I am. You are waiting for that part, right? I mean, we're all just messed up. We all need a savior, but we are not each other's saviors. That will only lead to disappointment. In our strength, other people are not Anything other than counterfeit saviors. Number three, philosophy and religion. I'm going to study everything. I'm going to look at at what all the philosophers said. I'm going to read up. I'm going to fill my head with knowledge. I believe that education is the way to salvation or to overcome problems. If we could just educate ourselves, if we could just become smarter about a thing, we could overcome it. We set down a, a, a series of beliefs for our life. We lay down a, a rule of life for ourselves based on all these things we're reading, but it's going to come up empty. Or, or, or we dive into religion and we just add religious rites to our life. One of the things that's you know unique about our church uh, compared to the broad spectrum of Christendom and other religions, in fact, is we are very devoid of right and ritual. It's because it's so easy to just fall into a certain prayer or light a candle or go to this service or kneel at this time and you fall into all the rites and rituals and you do find a sense of comfort from that because we like routine and we like religion. But it's not going to save anyone. It's a counterfeit savior. Or number four, work and achievement. This also is a counterfeit savior. I'm going to th- throw myself in our, my work. I said, things are really hard right now. I'm going to throw myself into my work, I'm just going to work more hours. I'm going to pour myself into my uh, degree. I'm, I'm going to get this degree and then I'm going to re-enroll. And I'm going to do another degree and I'm going to take this course and I'm, I'm going to go over here and, and take this program and I'm going to add to my knowledge. I'm going to add to my achievements or I'm going to pursue this leisure thing that I just love doing. It gives me a sense of accomplishment. We throw ourselves into it, but it's, it's not saving us. And then here's a fifth one, philanthropy, a giving back of both my time and my my treasures, my money. And for sure, philanthropy, the great thing about this is it gets your eyes off yourself, unlike some of these other saviors, where I'm I'm putting my focus on myself. This is now I'm going to focus on you. And that's not a bad thing, that I would serve you and care for you and give to you and contribute to your life and not really think about myself. In fact, it's cathartic. It's healing to even just think about that and to serve others. But no one is getting saved, as awesome as that is, to give to others. No one is getting saved by working on behalf of others. Now, the thing about this list, when you look at it, inner strength, other people, even like the knowledge that comes from philosophy and pursuing the right kind of religion, work is good, achievement is good, philanthropy is good. When you look at this list, you just go, those are all really good things. In fact, those are all things that God has given to us as a gift. These are all wonderful things about being a human being in the world today. But if we let them, these will supplant God As our Savior. And none of them even comes close to the mark. Because these are, we're talking about an unlikely Savior here. And these are all likely Saviors. These are the things that the world easily thinks of in terms of this is the best way to live your life. Jesus is an unlikely Savior who had, listen to this now, he had an unlikely birth. An unlikely birth. He came as a vulnerable infant. Infant. He was born to a poor woman in an insignificant village among animals. He was away from the power center and the powerful people of the day. It was an unlikely birth in every way. He had an unlikely life. He lived an unremarkable life in every way, as we just said, for 30 years. People didn't even know. So unremarkable that no one in his hometown of Nazareth suspected that he would do what he did. People kept saying over and over again, can anything good come from Nazareth? When he went to actually preach there, the people were so angry at him because he was claiming what he was claiming about being Messiah that they tried, in his hometown, they tried to throw him off a cliff. He spent the first part of his life in Egypt before he even got to Nazareth. He lived an unlikely life. He, he had an unlikely identity. He came claiming something that's impossible. He claims to be human and he claims to be God. I mean, our human minds, we can't even understand that. This is an unlikely identity. It's impossible to be God and to be human. He isn't simply some human hero, some political leader, some military leader who takes charge and leads his people. He's something completely different than that. He had unlikely followers. He chose unusual and unqualified people to be his army and his leaders. He had an unlikely message. He proclaimed not a, not, a, not a triumphal type message, not marshalling the troops type message. He actually proclaimed a message of love, of compassion, of mercy, of grace. In the Sermon on the Mount, it is such a radical sermon because he said things like that, like, like this. If someone asks for your coat, give them your overcoat too. If someone hits you, let him hit you again. Not only should you not be fighting your enemies, you should love your enemies. I mean, this is a radical message that he's preaching. A far cry from what great leaders say to inspire people to action. And he had an unlikely mission. He didn't come to win. Not in the sense that we would think of it. His stated purpose was to die. No military leader does that. Just three some years into his mission, he's gone. He's dead. He's been killed. He didn't lead the people to an epic victory. The whole thing seems to end in a fizzle with a defeat and with sorrow and brokenness. In fact, not only Jesus, but the whole cast of nativity characters is unlikely. Joseph and Mary are unlikely. Unmarried, carrying a child, poor, working class couple from another backwater village, this time in Galilee. The shepherds, the first to call on the family to honor the new king, but were of such low standard and low standing in the society that their word wasn't even credible to people. Then the magi These these wealthy out-of-counters with this royal entourage who showed up, not at Christmas. The Magi did not come at Christmas. You all know that, right? They did not come at Christmas. This is a pet peeve of mine. If you have set up a nativity set at your house and the Magi are in the nativity set, you need to go home and move them to the other side of the room. Okay. They don't come for like 18, 24 months later. Get them on the other side of the room. OK? No, I'm serious. You think I'm joking. Move your magi. Get your theology straight about this. Okay, that's a whole other series. I did actually preach like a whole series on the Magi. I feel very passionate about this. Where was I? Yeah, these magi, these powerful, wealthy, out-of-towners, they show up, this grand entourage, they stick their political noses into Israel's affairs. No one's happy about it. And then the fishermen, the tax collectors, the women, none of whom were esteemed in that culture, all of them unlikely. But God... But for God, amen? In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Think about that in terms of the whole Christmas thing and Jesus coming. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Don't make the mistake of looking for any other savior. Because it is foolish. It is ridiculous that the peace we need, the peace that we're looking for, was found in the most unlikely of places, in an animal's feed trough. One last phrase. When I'm vulnerable and facing crushing circumstances, help appears in an unexpected place in an unlikely savior who delivers an unshakable peace. Now look, this, this is... This is exactly what we want, what we need, what we need at Christmas, what we need beyond for the rest of our lives. Verse four continues, and they shall they shall dwell secure of all the things of all the things that you could have right now, with all the turmoil that goes on in our lives and The illness and the sadness and the grief we're bearing and the brokenness of our lives, if we could have one thing, if one thing could be put under the tree and we could unwrap it and have it. It would be that we could dwell secure. I want I just want peace and order. I don't want the anxiety. I don't want to shed another tear. I want to dwell secure. Anyone else? This is what you want. I just want to dwell secure. How do we get that? Well, notice what Micah says. For now, this king, this ruler, shall be great to the ends of the earth. No king, no ruler, no savior like this one. This is different. Verse five says, and he, this ruler, he shall be our peace. Get that underlined in your Bibles. He shall be our peace. This is the shalom of God. This is sin forgiven. This is relationship with God restored. This is eternity secured for me. And ultimately when we start to think about what our problem really is. Our problem is not that we are not at peace with ourselves. Our problem is not that we are not at peace with others. Our problem is not that we are not at peace with our circumstances. Our problem is that we are not at peace with God. And if we would settle that issue that we would be at peace with God, all those other things, the inner turmoil, the relationships with others, all the circumstances in my life, all of those begin to click into place as I get a divine and eternal perspective on life. Micah declared it. Listen now. Micah declared that he shall be their peace. Micah 5.5. 5. And Isaiah called him, in fact, the prince of peace. Isaiah 9.6. And at his birth, the angels announced that this child would indeed bring peace on earth, Luke 2.14. And Jesus said to his friends who were so troubled at the time, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, John 14.27. And echoing Micah, Paul would later write, He himself is our peace. And that he had broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility through the cross. And that by doing so, Jesus actually preached peace to those who were far off. Ephesians 2. Making available to all the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Philippians 4.7. And if you do not have that peace... You need only believe in Jesus Christ and give your life to follow Him. And if you're a Christian and you don't have that peace, you need to repent and sort it out with Him and receive what He offers. And if you do, you will dwell secure no matter the circumstances because Jesus Christ Himself will be your peace. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, um, again, it's not hard for us to think about all the trouble in our lives and the promise that's laying right there for us to dwell secure in you. Father, that's attractive. That, I would say, is a longing in our hearts. And so, God, I pray that we would be able to cut through the nonsense that often plagues our minds and our hearts. Father, that we would hear the clarity of your word today. That we would receive, bow down to, repent before this ruler, Savior, the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, these these things we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.